Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hamilton's new mandatory face covering bylaw comes into effect. And Hamilton enters stage three coming up this Friday. And the House of Commons back in session today. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Oh, I'm Cody Fox. Hey, your mask, your mask. Take your mask off. Hamilton's mandatory mask bylaw is now in effect. Do your part. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Talking about speaking moistly, my goodness. I think I have to mop this place down a little bit. Uh, I, I think we should do have him do that from behind a glass, just for everybody's uh, safety. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. It is week number 19 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Feel free to jump into the conversation. You know how to do that. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there waiting for you. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Another big show today. Lots to talk about. Uh, coming up at 1 o'clock this afternoon, we will carry the Premier's News Conference live again with the uh, daily COVID-19 update. Also, the House of Commons back in session today. We'll talk about that and uh, just more wacky information coming out of the United States in regard to um, anything COVID-19 related, it uh, appears. All right, uh, big day for uh, Hamilton in the sense that the mandatory uh, mask bylaw goes into effect. So any public area that you are in, uh, you have to be wearing a mask. This is a now a city bylaw, uh, despite there being a protest in uh, Gore Park over the weekend about not wearing a mask. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. So uh, first thing I want to talk about before we get to the masks is uh, obviously we've seen uh, Ontario, parts of Ontario, move into stage three. Certainly the greater Toronto, Hamilton area, Niagara, uh, Windsor, Essex, not included in that at this point. But we also saw a slight uptick in the numbers uh, over the weekend. Your thoughts about that? That's very common. I think we're going to see a continuous fluctuation in the numbers depending on how many tests we get done and the results that come back, but also the community response to uh, the regulations and interventions we have in place. So uh, uh, throughout this journey with COVID-19, we're going to continuously see numbers rise and fall. And the trick here is to keep a close eye on the number of deaths and our health system's ability to respond to the crisis as it evolves over time. Uh, we've certainly uh, uh, seen a lot of these cases, or, or this is certainly uh, uh, the information floating around that a lot of this or some of this is caused by the opening of bars and patios and that sort of thing. Your thoughts on this, and is this a direction we should be going in? There's absolutely a concern there, Scott, so I'm happy you brought that up. There is a concern that with the reopening of bars and restaurants and people are gathering more in small places, uh, close to each other, sometimes not wearing a face mask, that we are going to see an increase in the number. And the, the the clear message here is that we don't want to have to go back into a lockdown. So uh, the, the message from our public health experts and our health officials is that to please continue practicing safe hygiene because 
those alarming, uh, those numbers can be alarming. They're not at this point, but they can be alarming and they might cause a lockdown once again where we shut down everything and we ask everybody to stay at home. We don't want to get there. We've seen other parts in the world where that has happened. And so we're learning lessons from them to say that we must continue practicing safe hygiene. So continue to take out takeouts, delivery to your house as much as possible. I know that we have this urgent sensation to go back to life uh, as we knew it before COVID-19. And by that, I mean gather with friends and bars and restaurants. We really want to minimize this as much as possible while still supporting small businesses. Uh, and so takeout and delivery is a great option to support small businesses while staying safe. Um, we certainly know how much uh, this has devastated the hospitality industry. We're going to talk about that a little later on in the show. Um, that being said, can this be done safely? Is there a yeah, way so to my, do this safely? Yeah, there, my heart does go out to small business owners out there. It's actually all business owners, regardless of their size. I think that it is very hard to argue that you know, the economy hasn't taken a hit because of COVID-19. The businesses have not been affected. We're seeing this across sectors throughout the country. Uh, is there a way to do this safely? Yes. And I think we're trying to get creative in that. And by that, I mean is that we're noticing businesses are trying to offer promotions and deals. There have been layoffs to accommodate for the increased pressure and burden on the business. Uh, and so there's ways for us to support them. And, and my best suggestion to people out there is, you know, try to support, figure out what local businesses around that are struggling by just calling them and asking, see how they're doing, uh, ordering in as much as possible, take out. But also, if you are somebody in a position that can offer financial help, uh, either by hiring people that have been laid off, or you have extra money and you're thinking about where to donate it, this is a perfect time to look at small businesses as the perfect place to donate your money. Uh, any advice for anyone who does want to venture out? I- I'm sure there's a lot of people that I, I know even I feel hesitant about uh, going out. I just, just even running errands over the weekend, you're very hesitant about it. Uh, you know, I-, I guess some are. I mean, it's different uh, uh, for everyone. But any advice or tips for those who are? Wear a face mask. So keep that face mask in your pocket, in your bag at all times. Wear it when you're in close proximity to people. It not only provides you safety for you, but it provides safety for the rest of the population. I think the evidence right now is conclusive on face masks. I understand we went back and forth on at the beginning. And to be fair, the message at the beginning was don't use surgical masks because we need to save them for healthcare providers. Uh, and so now we know that face masks are effective, that there are alternatives to it. There are many options out there in the market, Scott. People have been you know, providing cloth masks, bandanas. Wear face masks. If you want to go out there, you want to have you know, a drink or a meal on a patio with your close bubble circle of friends, please wear a face mask when possible uh, to protect everybody around you and yourself first and foremost. Uh, there was an interesting letter that uh, came from uh, the mayor of Toronto, uh, John Tory, in regard to opening up for stage three. As I mentioned, obviously, uh, the greater Toronto Hamilton area is still uh, in stage two at this point, but 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 coming up with suggestions to perhaps uh, you know p- put a few more regulations, a few more stipulations on those who are uh, entering stage three in these hotspot areas. Your thoughts on that? I think that we're going to see this change in policy perspective from one region to another uh, always. And what I mean by that is that certain areas demand different policy options, and the reason for that, and regulation being one policy option. The reason for that is that because the demographic is different. We talk a lot in the policy world about social determinants of health. That is things like access to housing and transport. So an area like downtown Toronto or downtown Hamilton 
plays out very different than, for example, Stony Creek or out to Scarborough and Toronto. So my point there to make is that depending on the demographic and the infrastructure that is available, there's different policy options that are most effective. So when we talk about different ways of reopening things for COVID-19, what they're trying to say here is that we're looking at what is available for that demographic and what is the safest and best way to address that by creative and smart policy options that have shown to be effective. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Uh, mandatory masks are now the scene in Hamilton. Uh, Will, can we play that clip from uh, Councillor Brad Clark? He's what he, here's what he had to say in regard to the new bylaw. Please wear a mask. We don't want to see a situation where we have permanent unemployment come up because they had to shut down the economy again because of the second wave. Wearing the mask is going to help us keep the economy moving, help keep people bringing money into the households, and keeping healthy. I think that's a great idea. All right, let's bring in Dr. Nin Tran, Associate Medical Officer of Health, City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for having me. So your thoughts on Hamilton's mandatory mask by law and and as far as people's accepting of it, I, I, do you find that Hamiltonians, for the most part, getting in line here? Well, first, I guess I want to clarify that the bylaw is a face-covering bylaw, so it not only covers masks, but it, it covers other face coverings, like scars, bandanas, mm-hmm. as long as they cover the uh, nose, mouth, and, and chin. Uh, I mean, in general, with any... Uh, Law, ultimately, the, the idea is that it's going to be voluntary compliance and that most people will, um, will comply with bylaw. I mean, certainly as, as we've seen in the media, as well as with, uh, on council and board of health, um, it's, it's not a unanimous uh, support. I mean, there's certainly, uh, folks and citizens in, in Hamilton that don't necessarily uh, agree with it. And, but I would hope that, um, you know, as it becomes effective and, um, people will uh, com- comply with uh, the bylaw. Do you find that uh, as we see what's happening in the United States, specifically the southern United States, and how they are uh, boomeranging around and never really got this uh, first wave uh, under control, do you think that's helping to uh, get the message across that we have to do this now to avoid that later? Yeah, I think this is, you know, we are in some sense, fortunate to see what's happening in other uh, jurisdictions, whether it's uh, positive or negative. And, and one of the reasons why uh, we recommended the, the bylaw, which was uh, accepted, is that we saw from jurisdictions across the world that uh, implemented a, a mask or face covering policy is that they, they had significantly higher uptake of use of uh, masks uh, or face coverings and the and their numbers of COVID infections, um, you know, relative to, on average, to those who, who did not have such sort of a policy or, or high uptake in masks were, were significantly better than those uh, other jurisdictions. So we're we're hoping to, you know, that uh, we and citizens can learn from other jurisdictions in terms of the usefulness of masks, and then uh, as a cautionary tale of um, you know reopening. Um, without, you know, having uh, a little too early or without uh, sufficient uh, precautions, which is one of the reasons we we have this not as a substitute for physical distancing or hand hygiene, but as an additional complementary measure uh, as we 
continue to reopen uh, services in the economy and to uh, attempt to prevent uh, uh, resurgences. Uh, obviously, uh, the greater Hamilton, Toronto area, Niagara and, and such still in stage two, uh, talking possibly about next week into stage three is what we're hearing now. Uh, should there be additional restrictions as these areas head into stage three or is that in a sense keeping them in stage two? Are you talking about additional restrictions for the yeah. places that are being open or the uh, jurisdictions that are going to be reopening? Well, as as these more populated areas move into Stage 3, should there be additional uh, regulations put on these specific areas because they are hotspots? Well, in terms of um, the different jurisdictions, it's uh, because we, as well as a number of members of the GTA, uh, didn't enter stage two until later compared yeah. to others. And I think it, it's, it was prudent uh, to delay our entering in stage three because it, the idea was to wait uh, at least for four weeks of, of data. I think, you know, similar to what, you know, our mayor has, has said, uh, and same as our general manager, Paul Johnson, uh, anytime, you know, you, you Although you might have permission to enter stage three, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone uh, must and should uh, be ready. So certain establishments and facilities, uh, if uh, they're not quite ready with their their protocols and they're not ready, uh, you know, they don't have to go into uh, a stage three. But certainly, you know, when you move into the stage three, when you reopen things, uh, it, it should be with some restrictions, parameters, uh, compared to what has happened prior to COVID. So we've seen that thing with places of worship and patios where it's not open as, you know, has, has been. It could be open in terms of different hours, uh, uh, you know, uh, capacity restrictions. So you're not opening at 100% capacity so you can still have physical distancing. And then the one thing we've, we, we at, and clearly the majority of the health units have, have implemented is an additional measure of, of mandatory face coverings uh, as well to uh, to try to limit uh, uh, any additional risk from the, the reopening. Dr. Tran, how concerned are you as we start to, we all certainly know what the hospitality industry has gone through, but how concerned are you as we open restaurants and patios and bars and such? Um, is this, can we do this safely? I think it can be done safely. I, that's why, but we have to also be cautious in terms of Looking very closely in terms of our, our numbers, uh, we have to be, you know, good with messaging, and we, we need citizens not to um, to realize, oh, it's open, I can just go back to doing everything normal. I don't have to you know, take any additional precautions. And I think it's also important with the, which which I understand the province is also, uh, you know, applying to uh, a stage three facilities that can reopen. That it's it's being done so with parameters uh and restrictions that uh you know that are in place that's different than you know pre-covid days so whether that's uh you know in terms of capacity uh, uh that you know allows and spacing to allow physical distancing whether that's restricting or putting you know restrictions in terms of the amount of movement uh that can happen and things that we're doing here in terms of uh, of a bylaw, but I do think it is uh, important in, in some of those establishments that uh, we've seen, such as some other jurisdictions in Canada, where you know reopening a bar, uh, 
um, you know, could could lead to an increased risk. So we just have to make sure that it's it's being done prudently um, to, to balance the the risk of COVID, but also the, the need to uh, you know continue to reopen uh, our economy. Dr. Nin Tran has been with us, Associate Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. And, of course, Hamilton uh, putting in a mandatory face covering by law as of today. Dr. Tran, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if we were really expecting this uh, today, but as of Friday, uh, because we were later going into stage two, we just assumed we would be later uh, and stick with Toronto and the greater Toronto area and peel the golden horseshoe and such uh, with coming out. But uh, the premier has announced that uh, as of this Friday, uh, Hamilton, Halton, uh, as well as York Region, Durham, and Niagara will all enter into Stage 3. And obviously what that means is uh, the indoor dining experience in restaurants uh, will obviously uh, move into uh, uh, the Hamilton area. Uh, also big news today, and that is that the uh, bylaw to wear a face covering of some sort, a mask of some sort, while well, you are out in public. Uh, in Hamilton has also gone into effect. So uh, good news for uh, those in Hamilton, Halton, Durham, York, and uh, Niagara that as of this Friday will, in fact, will be moving into Stage 3. The uh, Toronto area, Peel, uh, and Windsor-Essex obviously still out of that uh, circle. All right, here's what uh, Premier Doug Ford had to say at his press conference a little earlier on. Today, we have more good news for Ontario families, businesses, and communities. The following regions will be able to enter Stage 3 on Friday, July 24th at 12.01 a.m. Durham, Haldeman, Norfolk, Halton, Hamilton, Lambton, Niagara, and York Region. As of Friday, thousands of more businesses will be able to open up. And we'll be there for them when they do because we're all in this together. And here's what uh, Minister Elliott, Health Minister Elliott, had to say in regard to uh, the announcement of uh, Hamilton, Halton, York and Durham and Niagara heading into Stage 3 this Friday. Physical distancing, wearing face coverings, practicing good hand hygiene, and keeping our social circle safe, they will all remain critical as we continue to safely reopen Ontario. All right, uh, mandatory face covering mask uh, bylaw in effect today in Hamilton. Lots of municipalities have done the same thing. Basically, if you go into uh, out in public or into public areas, uh, stores, what have you, uh, you have to be wearing a mask. That is the bylaw now in Hamilton as of today. Uh, obviously, there are exemptions for medical reasons and such. Uh, many have uh, been upset that uh, we are starting to open up uh, bars and restaurants and patios. I guess it started with patios. And then uh, as we enter into stage uh, three, uh, the inside, the dining experience uh, will increase as well, obviously uh, under uh, strict 
COVID-19 protocol. Uh, but many are saying that, uh, you know, and there, there's even people that are politically uh, using this to tie it in. You know, you should be working on schools, not bars, as if government can't do more than one thing at a time. Um, but again, uh, on the other side of this argument um, is the hospitality industry, which has taken a direct hit and continues to do so. To talk more about all of this and an article uh, that uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce has out called Business Groups Call on Government to Avoid a Recipe for Disaster during prolonged food services recovery. Perrin Beatty is with us, CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and is with us now. Uh, Perrin, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Thanks very much. So you've certainly heard the arguments, uh, Perrin, that, uh, you know, we shouldn't even be concentrating on this. We should be concentrating on schools. What are your thoughts when you hear these discussions? Well, of course we need to concentrate on schools and on all sectors of society. The real question now is, as we start to move beyond the immediate lockdown that we had to deal with when the pandemic came ashore, uh, how do we do so intelligently that in a way that allows us to resume more of ordinary lives and allows the business businesses to continue to function and allows us to transition from a subsidies-based economy eventually to one where both families and businesses are able to be self-sustaining? So what are you asking here? What is the Chamber's concerns? It, 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 we're focused here directly on the issue of restaurants. And if you look at the contribution that restaurants make across the country, typically uh, some one out of every 15 jobs in the country, some 1.2 million Canadians receive their living from the restaurant sector. And it contributed about $31 billion annually to Canada's GDP. Since the lockdowns took place, and nobody quarrels with the, the need for the lockdown. It was essential that the governments that governments reacted uh, to the pandemic. But since then, what we've found is that restaurants, which in the best of times operate with very narrow margins, that they simply became unprofitable across the country. And that these small businesses, which are part of the main street of every community in Canada, uh, had their very existence put into jeopardy. So what we need to do is to focus on how we can help them. Usually in a recession, it's the sector that's first in that is first out. In this case, though, it was hospitality, restaurants, travel, tourism that were the first in, and they're likely going to be the last out, which means that we have to have a tailored program to help them. Uh, even with a tailored program to help, how concerned are you some just simply will not survive? We hear that. Very. It's, it's very straightforward that some some won't. Even in the best of times, the, the churn in the restaurant sector is high. When typically restaurants have a margin of between 4 and 6% in the good times, and uh, you have them then shut down for a protracted period of time where they have to continue to pay rent, they have to continue to pay suppliers, then when they reopen, uh, it may cost them more to reopen. They may be losing more money as a result of reopening than if they had stayed shut because of social distancing requirements. So if you take out half the seats out of a restaurant, there's just no business plan that allows you to survive. And that means then that, that it's important that governments recognize this is a special case. So is this something we can do safely, or is it uh, a case of, of, of more support needed from government for restaurants? It's both. Um, for example, we've seen the opening up of patios, um, and that's a good thing. And governments have provided support to that as well. For example, expanding the space that's available for 
patios for restaurants. And we've brought in new protocols in restaurants where servers are wearing masks and where other measures are put in place to ensure the safety of people. Um, but we can't go back immediately to where we were before with people being inside, packed in the way that they would normally be in good times. And there's just no way that any restaurant can survive on patio business over the summer in a cold climate like Canada. So we're going to need a combination of, of both safety measures that ensure that that any reopening takes place safely. But secondly, that, that uh, there are support measures in place that assist restaurants to be able to continue. Otherwise, the loss to our communities would be just so great across the country. We have talked many times on this show about how life will change permanently for pretty much everybody, everything uh, post-COVID-19. Is there a new template? Will this create a new template of what we think restaurants are, what they will will be in the future? It has already to an extent. What, What is remarkable is how rapidly so many of these restaurant owners changed the model for their business, where they went to curbside delivery, for example. There's also been a change that that government has made for the short term in terms of the sale of uh, alcohol for takeout purposes uh, so you can get a bottle of wine along with your your takeout dinner. And that's a a good thing that I would hope would become permanent. Um, Municipalities have looked at how can we expand patio services for restaurants. So in a number of ways, things are already different and will probably remain different. But in the fundamentals of, uh, of how do we ensure that in cold weather people can eat inside and get their meal and do so safely, this is going to require that, that we work very closely together. How important will it be, I guess, not only the restaurant industry, but every industry, specifically the restaurant industry, because it is so sensitive right now, how important is it for them to promote safety to their customers? That if, you know, less about come here because this is great and more about if you come here, we can do this safely. It's critical. Without customers feeling confident that they can go safely, they won't come. It's that simple. So that if the government, if governments were to remove all restrictions on restaurants today, unless customers were confident that they weren't putting their health or the health of their families at risk, they simply wouldn't be there. Same with the employees. Uh, We have to provide the assurance to employees that they're going to be safe coming back to work as well. So that has to be the single most important priority. And that as we demonstrate that that we can put new protocols in place and manage it safely, uh, people will feel more confident and it will help them to, to feel more comfortable about coming out supporting their restaurants. How concerned are you that even with uh, the loosening of uh, allowing things to reopen and obviously uh, COVID-19 protocols, that uh, there may not be the demand? People, even though things are open, may stay away a bit longer. We know in the short term that, that demand simply isn't going to go back to where it was before. And that's the real issue here. Um, we talk periodically about the new normal. We won't even know what the new normal looks like, let alone be living it, hmm. until we have a, a vaccine and wide distribution. And there we're probably looking it up to two years. And that means then that, that during that time, uh, where people uh, have activities are discretion, that are discretionary, that includes travel, tourism, uh, movie theaters, uh, you know, live performances, restaurants and others, People are going to think twice about going anywhere 
where they have a choice and they're going to be with other people. That means then that it will be a considerable period of time before we get anything that resembles uh, normalcy. Uh, and in the meantime, it, it means then that, that in some areas of the economy, governments will have to look at tailored programs to help those particular sectors. In other areas, we'll be getting back to something much more akin to normal, much more rapidly. And we can move away from subsidies and other support programs to allowing businesses and families to become self-sustaining in those areas more rapidly. Uh, the Ontario Medical Association is saying that the Ontario government should reconsider uh, indoor dining at restaurants and pubs uh, for the time being as areas are going into phase three. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, you know, there's no question that we have to follow the advice very closely that's given by public health officials. But what we've demonstrated with, for example, the grocery store, when, when the pandemic first struck, we were all afraid that if you went to the grocery store, you could die. Uh, you don't have that concern today because you're you're satisfied that procedures and, and uh, social distancing protocols have been put in place, protective equipment has been put in place that allows us to do that safely. We can't keep society in permanent lockdown in a medically induced coma for the next two years until we get a vaccine. Now, Canadians are going to expect to, to resume more of their more normal lives. So it means that we're going to be living with this very serious virus in our midst. And what we need to do is to focus on how can we manage that successfully as we're doing in grocery stores and, and in other areas today. It's going to mean that, that uh, it has to be a tailored response. It's going to vary from sector to sector. It's going to vary from region to region. And it means that it's not business as usual for any of us, but, but our goal should be to allow Canadians to resume more of their ordinary lives and allow a restart of our economy in a safe way. Baron B has been with us, CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, talking about restaurants and bars and the hospitality industry as a whole, uh, gradually opening up in a post-COVID-19 world. Perrin, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Uh, lots of information floating around today. Uh, Hamilton, a uh, new face covering mask by law in effect as of today. So going out anywhere in the hammer, you have to have some sort of uh, uh, face covering, unless, of course, there's a medical reason for uh, not having one. And as well, uh, lots of, uh, well, it's been announced, and of course, it's just due to a lack of information. Same reasons for uh, uh, the greater Hamilton, Toronto area going late into stage two is the same reason we're going late into stage three so it'll be another week before that happens part of stage three is the opening of the indoor dining experience at restaurants and such uh, we've already seen uh, them reopen with patio service now with phase three it moves indoor uh, the ontario medical association is raising red flags about this let's bring in dr samantha hill president oh Let's bring in uh, Dr. Samantha Hill, President, Ontario Medical Association, and is with us now. Doctor, I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. So what is uh, what are the concerns going into Stage 3 from the OMA? So the biggest concern as we go into Stage 3 is really that of the bars and the indoor bars in particular. The evidence from everywhere else that has done this, whether it's as far away as Spain, England, or even as close as right next door in Montreal, is that new, new cases are linked to bars and they have jumped up to 30 to 45 in one day and they expect to keep rising. 
this is a concern, this is a risk, and it's a risk that we don't think needs to be taken right now. Uh, is this more to do with uh, uh, bars and lounge-type places as opposed to eat-in restaurant uh, establishments? Absolutely. So the things that happen in bars that are different than some of the other establishments that have been discussed is, first of all, they're indoors, and that increases your risk. And second of all, the air ventilation in most bars tends to be a little bit cozier, a little bit denser, so not as great air ventilation. But then the other thing that's different is the people and their behavior who patronize the restaurant or the bar. And so when you go to a bar, you don't really go with the intention of eating a lot. You tend to maybe order one snack, but drink a little bit more. And as we drink, we all know that our inhibitions get lowered and our decisions change a little bit. We become less likely to do the things we ought to do and more likely to do the things we want to do. The last four months, we've all had it drilled into us that the way to stay safe in this is to keep your distance from others, to wear masks and to wash your hands. But when we go to a bar and we're a little bit tipsy or even more than tipsy, we're less likely to be physically distant. Six meters becomes, sorry, six feet becomes four feet, becomes two feet. You know, how do you even wear a mask while drinking your drink? Do you leave it around your neck or do you keep bringing it up and down? Neither of those is great masking behavior. What happens if you just poke a hole? What happens if you just poke a hole through it and stick the straw? I guess that's not going to, that's defeating the purpose too, isn't it? I don't think that works so well, but I've seen the same thing with cigarettes, and that's even more concerning. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, is there – oh, my goodness. I can just imagine that. Is there a way to do this safely? Is there a way – is it up to is, – is the onus on the owner or the managers of the establishment to kind of police this? If you want to do it, you got to play by the rules. So, look, the cases that we've seen, the incidences that we've seen have been associated with bars that have followed all the rules. This isn't the fault of the owners. And we right. know how hard it's been on small business owners. You know, the last four months have been devastating to so many of these places. But it's just a question of how people behave. And right now, we're in the middle of a Canadian summer. It's perfect weather out there. This is the time when we don't need to take that risk. Uh, so, again, this is less about the restaurants, more about lounges, bars, pubs, that sort of thing. Is that accurate? Exactly. Think places where people tend to stand or sit closer together, where the music tends to be louder, so you're speaking louder, where the air tends to be a little bit heavier. Those are the areas that we're worried about. So when do you think it would be safe for them to reopen? So that's a decision we'll have to make each time and every every day as we go forward. Um, and it would have to depend on what the crowd prevalence is, so how many cases are up, turning up in the public on any given day. We're still at over 100. I think the numbers on the weekend were 165-ish, and then today's numbers were still over 100. And that's without having introduced this new risk. We've already seen what plays out when we take gambles. You know, the long-term care fiasco was devastating for many, many people. We don't need to... Have do that again. Uh, what about if these sort of establishments have contract uh, contact tracing in place? Uh, everybody's documented who's there. I guess that opens up a whole other privacy issue. But, you know, one of the conditions of coming in, you got to tell us who you are, where you're from, and, and your phone number in case something happens. Well, that's certainly a bare minimum because that would allow us to contact trace if someone becomes sick. But if you think about it, um, it only takes one person showing up in a bar of 50 people who's pre-symptomatic to infect the rest of them. And if you get 50 people going out who all get sick and have the capacity to each infect their entire social bubble of 10 people, you know, that's 500 people right there from one person who didn't do anything wrong. They followed the rules. 
What are your thoughts on, I was looking at some of the stats over the weekend, um, not so much the numbers of how many, but uh, the different age groups, different uh, demographics. And it's like the majority of people who have had this are somewhere between 20 and 59. And we, we, you know, we always thought we we're concerned about the seniors and such. How concerned are you that the, the biggest spreaders seem to be young people middle age and middle age? So I haven't seen the data you're looking at, but off the top of my head, I would just say, isn't that the majority of people, period, between ages of 20 and 59? Yeah, so it's more age? like a family reunion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So my off the top of my head, you know, what we're worried about is the people who are going to get sick with it, and many of those are within that 20 to 59 range. We know that people over 60 are at increased risk, but also anyone who is immunosuppressed, anyone who has intrinsic lung disease, you know, there's lots of people in that age range who are not your typical perfectly healthy human. And even your typical perfectly healthy human, some of them get really sick too. So uh, the Ontario Medical Association calling for the bars to remain closed. Is that accurate? Is that what you're looking for until further information? Absolutely. All right, Dr. Samantha Hill has been uh, with us, president of the Ontario Medical Association, and again, consider uh, says the government should consider uh, the whole indoor uh, bar scenario. Samantha, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter. Uh, for Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, hope you're doing well as well, Scott. I'm really unsure why these questions are being asked as if, you know, there's a different set of rules for this president over the last uh, president. Uh, that being said, the results will be the results. And I think as, as Biden's camp said, uh, you know, uh, there's there, there's those that are be happy to escort whoever isn't, uh, welcome there out the door. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts about his appearance on Fox? And, and again, you know, uh, trying to, uh, confuse everybody about whether he's going to stick to what the results are or not. Yeah, look, I'm sympathetical with you in the sense that I'm, I'm getting very tired of this discussion as well. Although, obviously, after the election, that includes the day after or a few days after, a week after, a month after, uh, President Trump, if he loses the election, has the right to challenge the results. You know, that, that's not, that shouldn't surprise anyone. Anyone has the right to do it. Now, whether it actually goes through or the procedure is allowed through or various states want to either do a hand count or some sort of a group slash individual count of all their ballots, that's a completely separate matter. But no, I mean, I think what he was trying to say in his usual fashion is that in 2016, if people remember during one of the presidential debates with Hillary Clinton, he directly stated that he wasn't going to say yes or no, whether he would accept the results. So he's obviously just maintaining the same stance. But aside from that, I think it's ridiculous because, firstly, the Constitution of the United States directly states that the term of a president ends on a particular day. That is, as of changes that have done, happened over the past few decades, January the 20th. So no matter what, it ends then. He can challenge, he can fight, he can yell, he can scream, he can do whatever he wants, but it ends on that particular day. Now, I know there have been some grandiose theories and publications like Newsweek magazine, for example, which have produced this wild scenario where, you know, as long as the army doesn't go in, as long as the staff support him, that he could not necessarily physically barricade the doors, but try to disrupt the whole proceedings 
In theory, all of that could potentially happen, but in practice, no, because the law is the law, and it directly states that if he loses, he loses. But if he wins in twenty, you know, in November, then fine, it carries on. Um, but with respect to the Fox News interview with uh, Chris Wallace, although a lot of people are focusing on that statement, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, there were a lot of other interesting things that were actually discussed there, including something that Newt Gingrich brought up in a tweet very recently, which was that, you know, the two men were both sitting outside the White House, which apparently the president had wanted, in the sweltering heat, had a, had a very powerful hour of discussion where, you know, people were called in to bring documents to prove a point. It was a pretty fierce debate as far as debates go in general. And as Newt Gingrich sort of suggested, could Joe Biden really have done something like that? And if you're using that as a point of comparison, I don't think Biden would have even lasted 20 minutes. Uh, I'm not sure what any of that has to do with anything, Michael, but I certainly uh, do respect you bringing it up. At the end of the day, um, uh, when questioned on those numbers and and what the condition is of of specifically the southern, uh, southern United States and how they're coping with this, there was that discussion about numbers, and he did request other people to bring in uh, information is are we distorting the numbers in some way i mean it is what it is how can we still pretend it isn't no the only reason i brought up scott is this to show is a counterbalance of how both of the presidential candidates the presumptive on the democratic side and the sitting president may handle something like that i just don't think unfortunately joe biden for all his good points and bad points could necessarily have survived in that sort of a battle. Anyway, we'll see. As the presidential debates occur, we'll find we'll see what happens. But yes, for the other things, look, I mean, Donald Trump's numbers, as I think you're sort of alluding to, have been badly beaten or taken a very bad beating during COVID-19 because of the way he's handled things, or at least the perception of the way he's handled things. He has a favorable rating in terms of the way his administration has handled COVID-19 The lowest I've seen is about 22%. The highest is no more than the low 30s, I think 31, 32. That's a terrible spread, no matter how you look at it. And when you look at poll numbers now, it does reflect the fact that in most major polls, Joe Biden either has a decent-sized lead or a significant lead, depending on how how the science comes out and how the actual poll, you know, the various questions are asked and how people respond. Um, but, yeah, look, as various states continue to suffer and struggle, including major states like Texas, Arizona, New York, um, Florida, and as well, some of the midsize or smaller states are struggling. Like one of them, for example, is Georgia. Georgia was actually the first U.S. state to open back up fully during COVID-19. Ironically, for a period of time, it wasn't actually doing too badly if you look at their numbers but there has recently been a very bad spike in the past few weeks as we've seen through, well, a large swath of the United States. And unfortunately, no matter what President Trump says, a lot of, a lot of the U.S. states are having a lot of trouble handling this. And we can see as the active COVID-19 case numbers for the United States is reaching 3 million. So it's a, it's a mess. So, you know, all the things that Trump had hoped to conduct this presidential election about, including the economy especially, are all taking a backseat for obvious reasons to the coronavirus pandemic. And because of this, and because of the poor way he's handled things, both in his press conferences, tweets, uh, battles with Dr. Anthony Fauci and other things, 
he's suffering and suffering badly because of it. So no matter how much he fought back in the Fox News interview against Chris Wallace to try and show a different face or a positive face in terms of all this, you know, when you consider everything that's going on right now, it's pretty hard to make that case. I think a lot of people would agree with you that Biden is past his due date uh, and perhaps not as sharp as he once was. Uh, Let me ask you this. How much is Biden a factor in this? Could this turn out to be anyone but Donald Trump, much like it was anybody but Hillary Clinton in 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 the last election? Well, I mean, look, some are suggesting, and I think correctly, that Joe Biden as a candidate is being looked upon in a very different manner than Hillary Clinton was looked upon as a Democratic presidential candidate four years ago. Uh, Gerald uh, uh, Seib in the uh, Wall Street Journal, or Seib, sorry, he recently made a, just wrote a piece in the last day or two where he made the point that no matter how it all shakes down in terms of differences in policy, politics, foreign policy, or just the way they handle COVID-19, Biden is just looked on or looked at as a very different candidate, which means that all the intangibles that Donald Trump was able to use to his advantage in 2016 to win may not necessarily play out this time. But whether Biden will be a factor or not, it has to be to some degree. I mean, obviously, they've muzzled him or his team has muzzled, muzzled him quite a bit, which is not surprising in a historical stance. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Even when he was vice president for Barack Obama, it was sort of known that you, you sort of kept crazy Uncle Joe on a, an imaginary leash because you never knew what he could say. And there are enormous amounts of articles, books, websites, all legitimate ones, which you can go to and see all the wild things that this man has said over the course of 20 to 30 years. And it's astonishing to believe that he's in the position he's in now. Again, it doesn't take away from his experience. It doesn't take away from all the various positions and committees and important jobs that he's held. But there's been there's a lot there that you have to be concerned about. And yet, as he gets older and as everyone gets older, there are certain attributes that come out. That's just part of life. We all know that. However, all that being said, will Joe Biden be a, a major factor? I think his team is probably hoping, Scott, that Biden can just sort of float along, not say too much, not appear too often outside. Remember, as they've already said, and he's already made the statement, he's not going to be making a lot of public appearances because of his age, because of COVID-19. Again, both legitimate, but at the same time, there's also the risk of his history coming forward, too. So it actually works to their advantage to some degree. But he will have to appear at a presidential debate, at least one, hopefully two. There are three scheduled. We'll see if that actually happens or not. And that's where you'll probably get a taste of whether Joe Biden is able to do well against Donald Trump in a one-on-one debate, which will be obviously somewhat important and probably more important than most presidential debates have been, at least since the Nixon-Kennedy debates in 1960. And secondly, it will also give you a bit of a sign or a bit of a telltale sign of how he's able to handle issues, what his solutions are going to be, his various types of problem solving, and just how he basically handles himself, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, as he speaks with the various, you know, answers the various questions and speaks directly with the sitting president. I think that will be a telltale sign. So, yes, Biden certainly plays a factor in all of this. 
it's a, whether he becomes a major factor or not remains to be seen. If Donald Trump loses and decides he's not going to accept the uh, the result that doesn't favor him, um, right. what does happen? I mean, can he create our anarchy? Is he not uh, promoting that now by assuming or even at least putting the possibility out there that, hey, I may not accept this? I mean, at the end of the day, is that not in some fo- in some way inciting anarchy? You're, if he doesn't win, he's going to raise hell. And is he hoping, is he trying to... Uh, instigate others to do the same? No. Okay, fine. If you want to use it in sort of a a very theoretical light, yes, it it sounds like anarchy or anarchical. I agree that. I mean, that's basically like, uh, you know, uh, in a court of law saying, well, if I don't like the decision, uh, I'm not going to accept it. Right. And look, he doesn't ever have to accept it. In fact, he can leave office and never accept it. Hillary Clinton has done a fine job the past few years, and it's still not accepted the result of that election in 2016. But no matter what, as I said, and I, you know, I don't want to be a broken record, there are obviously legal ways that he can actually proceed to actually challenge it to some degree. And that being sort of a hand count state by state, if he wants to, or challenge in particular states that he lost by small margins. That's very easy. Um, He could challenge the whole election, which would then throw it into the court system and probably eventually make its way to the Supreme Court, who would have to make a pretty fast judgment because, again, of the constitutional mandate of a January 20th deadline in terms of when a president either leaves office after one term because he or she lost or retains office that day because he or she won and gets a second term in office. So no matter what, he's, he's going to have to leave one way or the other. And I really can't see it come down to the way some of his critics and never-Trumpers are suggesting that, you know, you bring in the military to move him out. That is such nonsense. And honestly, I, I mean, I know people have obviously had a very difficult year. We've all had a trying year in 2020 due to COVID-19. Those sorts of things are not going to happen because, one, his cabinet wouldn't put up with it. Two, most Republicans wouldn't put up with it because no one would stand by this. And three, even Trump himself would realize that would be a horrendous way to go out of it, and it wouldn't make him look like a hero. He wouldn't look like a martyr. He'd look like a madman. So Hmm. in the end, if he loses the election badly— You'll see him scream and complain about early balloting, online voting, and all variety of things, but he'll go out. It's if the election is close, he might try to challenge it right up to the, you know, to basically the January 20th deadline, and that would be interesting in itself. But there's only so much he can do. Uh, last week, changed, uh, changes to his uh, campaign team, campaign manager specifically. Does that yes. say anything? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the removal of Brad Parscale is actually, you know, was interesting and caught a lot of people off guard, only in the sense that Parscale's been with him a long time. He's handled his online campaign. He handled it in 2016 and obviously was successful. And he had been given a much bigger role as campaign director this time around. But after the disaster that happened in Tulsa and that rally, I think a lot of people realized, Scott, that his days were numbered. So the change that was made to someone who is more experienced as a Republican operative and someone who has worked on other campaigns and with recognizable Republicans, such as George W. Bush and others, that is actually probably Trump's best move. If he's going to change his strategy at all, and he doesn't want to personally change, which means that he would change the way that he speaks, that he tweets, 
that he communicates with the media and other people. If he wants to maintain that, he then needs to basically ensure that all the window dressing around him changes to some degree. So that shift from what was what turned out to be a very bad episode, because the Tulsa rally, no matter how you slice it, was a complete and a total disaster, and everybody knows that. He needs to basically change that visage and improve it in certain ways to have recognizable Republicans, experienced people behind him, and those who have been in the trenches and fought political battles you know, in either one election or upwards of or five or six elections. People who know what they're doing. That is his best chance to improve things, as well as he has to sort of see what happens over the next few months. You know, will COVID-19 finally get under control in the United States? Will there be a second wave of the coronavirus? Which, as we know historically, if we look at other pandemics, could be far deadlier. Is that going to be problematic? And as well, basically, the way he handles things. Is he going to make nice with Dr. Fauci? There seem to be early signs that he's going to try to resolve this thing a little bit and ensure that Peter Navarro's op-ed for USA Today, which he, who is a member of his staff and who obviously has major problems with Dr. Fauci, is seen as just something that was done on an individual basis and has nothing to do with his administration. If he starts to make those small changes in his strategy, but makes bigger changes in the team assembled around him, well, it would be looked upon as different, and it might actually change the whole course of an election that right now is slipping out of his hands. Uh, will policy do that? Um, can Donald Trump change his tone? He's aggressive, he's divisive. Uh, policy or not changing, won't that have to change? Well, it's a question of whether policy is going to play a major role in this election. I think it's probably fair to say at the very beginning of this year, it would have, because the economy would have been a major player and something that he would have obviously championed. I mean, it was it was a point that actually worked to his advantage at the time. You know, when people asked, you know, who do you favor in terms of leading the country and leading the economy? He actually pulled very, very well. He had a lot of things going in that regime. But now, based on COVID-19 and other things, you're right. Policy has taken the back seat. I don't disagree, Scott. But it's the only real way that Donald Trump is actually going to win this election. Because when it comes to being a leader who takes care of communities and takes care of others in terms of health, survival, safety, etc., he doesn't do very well. I mean, he's not a very sympathetic or empathetic voice. And for those reasons, based on the way he's been leading the U.S. through the COVID-19, you can see that it's a major struggle. However, if he starts to talk about, I can help Americans, you know, build prosperity, get new jobs, get the economy rolling, that's where he succeeds, and that's where he was very successful in 2016. So he's going to have to try as hard as he possibly can to get back in that direction, whether he can or not or whether his team are able to shift the narrative back to something like that remains to be seen. But really, it's his only success route to success, I think. Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you for the time, as always. Be well. You too. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.